Our passage for tonight is Acts chapter 1, beginning in verse 12. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mountain called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer, together with the women, and Mary the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was in all about 120 and said, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness, and falling headlong he burst open in the middle, and all his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the field was called in their own language, Akeldama, that is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, May his camp become desolate, and let there be no one to dwell in it, and let another take his office. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John, until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward two, Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you are faithful to it. Lord, I pray that you would teach us tonight that we would hear from you because we are desperate to hear from you. Lord, that you would confront us with your truth, that you would challenge us and change us and transform us to be more like your Son, our Savior. We pray these things in his name and for his name here and around the world. Amen. Well, it's good to see you all. we are continuing the study in Acts, and uh, and something that Joel brought up early on, um, early on. I mean, we're in chapter one, so not not all that long ago. So hopefully you can remember this. Um, he, he brought up the, this question. He asked, you know, are we supposed to understand Acts descriptively, like church history? These these things happened, or are we supposed to really read it prescriptively, like like this is something that we should see? here today among us? And, and I think that that's a really important question, especially in something like Acts, a question worth asking. And so really that's the way that we are going to walk through this tonight. We're going to look at this descriptively, the events that took place, 
the church history side, this early church gathering and what happened. And then we're also going to look at it prescriptively. What really applies today? Now see, both of them matter today. Like it matters what happened then, even though it might not feel like it. You know, you can't really read that utilitarian mindset like, okay, which one am I? All right, am I, am I Matthias? Is that me? Or, or am I this justice guy that just kind of gets, you know, shoved to the side? Um, you know, which, which one am I? Because I, I, okay, I lost a job one time. Someone else was picked. Maybe, maybe I'm justice. Um, which I'm going with justice as his name tonight. I mean, if you want to call him Joseph, that's cool. But justice... It's a, it's a pretty solid name. Uh, name that you don't really hear as much, name your kid Judas. Uh, and, we're, and so we're going to spend some time talking about what happened with Judas, and then also what is, what's happening here with the choice of a 12th apostle. And the way that we're going to do that, the way we're going to walk through the descriptive side, is we're going to look at, first off, that what happened to Judas had to happen. What happened to Judas had to happen. Secondly, the choosing of a 12th apostle, that must happen. Choosing a 12th must happen. And the third thing, that Jesus showing them who he has chosen, that needs to happen. Jesus' choice of, of who the 12th apostle is to be, they need to hear that from him. And so that needs to happen. And then we'll move on and look at the, the prescriptive side of things. Um, so, so where we are right now, the, the ascension has occurred, and they are heading back to Jerusalem, the disciples. Um, and the disciples, that's a large number of people. You, you see in that upper room gathered together, you've got uh, 120 people gathered together in this upper room, this, this church gathering happening. And, and it's really interesting because... Luke is very emphatic about something in verse 14. So if you look at verse 14 with me. After he lists all of the disciples of the 12, uh, which is now the 11, um, after he lists the 11, he says this in verse 14. All these, with one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer, together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. He's very emphatic about something there in verse 14, and that is this, unity. All these, with one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer, together. See, this is, this is important because if we can do a little bit of backtracking here into Luke's gospel, uh, these disciples, the, these, these people that are now unified, scattered. They scattered. After Jesus was arrested, you know, you've got, you've got Peter who denied him three times. They, they scattered. And so what's really important is they're coming together and they are waiting for the Holy Spirit to come. As they're praying and eagerly awaiting that, we have to keep in mind the biographies of these guys. You know, who are these people? This 11 of the chief disciples, the closest, the inner circle. These are the ones that scattered. And so there, especially among them, where, where amongst that crew, they had, they had come to know and, and even care about this Judas guy. They had done ministry with this Judas, and he has betrayed not only Christ, but also them. And so the emotions, the, the, the fear, the confusion, 
as now they are told, Jesus says, I'm leaving, and then they see him disappear. And they are told to go and wait. And so something that's happening here is is this reinstating, restoring these disciples as followers of Christ. And so they come together, and they are unified in their prayer. And they pray together. It's not only the the 12 or the 11 at this point. It's not only the 11, but it's other disciples, both men and women, together, unified. And then it moves into what we'll call the first movement. What happened concerning Judas? And Peter steps up. Peter steps up in, in this crowd of people, and he says, what happened to Judas had to happen. There wasn't another option. And there are a lot of books and and essays and articles and schools of thought on Judas. Uh, Some paint him as just this embodiment of uh, the the Jewish rejection of Christ, that maybe he he wasn't a real person, but he was just, he just kind of, he's a character that embodies that rejection. And then others, they'll, they'll think that you know, there's the, the divine bait and switch. He was crucified, and Jesus, you know, ducks out the back door. Or, or all these different, uh, the, the gospel of Judas, and things like that. Um, and really, when all of that kind of gets put in its proper place aside, what we're left with concerning Judas is Scripture. And so that's what Peter turns to. Not legends or rumors or gossip that's going on about Judas. He goes to the scriptures. He goes to the Psalms, and so he addresses the, the gathering uh, with those words. He looks to scripture and he says, brothers, verse 16, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. Now he does this. He does that. He he looks back to the Psalms and he does something that Jesus taught him to do. You know, going back to Luke's gospel again, in, in Luke 24, 45, it talks about Jesus opening their minds concerning the scriptures and those scriptures having to do with him. And so as as Jesus opened Peter's mind to to conceive of these things, to see these things in Scripture. He then puts that into practice. When he addresses them, this gathering of the first church, he doesn't say, all right, I've got a couple of really good ideas. If we could get a couple of programs together, a couple of you all meeting up, you know, every so often, or he he doesn't come with those things. He comes with Scripture. And And the way he addresses their fears and concerns, the way he addresses their confusion, as one who was numbered with them, one that was a co-minister with them. This close person, Judas, who has betrayed Christ and them, he turns to the Scriptures. And he says, and, and what a wonderful affirmation here of these Scriptures, the Holy Spirit is the one who spoke. He spoke by the mouth of David. And so these Scriptures that you hold, these are not just David's musings, his songs. This isn't, just a prayer book of the Bible. This, this is the Word of God. 
The Holy Spirit has spoken through David. And when he did that, he spoke concerning Judas. And he alludes to, he quotes there, Psalm 69, which we read um, as our opening scripture. But in this section, um, he, he is, he's drawing this connection to an enemy of Jesus, the righteous sufferer. Now, it's important to keep in mind that Jesus chose the twelve. This, this person that betrayed him, this person uh, that went for the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and, and turned him over to be killed, that Jesus knew that. Jesus knew that that would happen. Um, you, you see in Mark 14 and also in Luke 22, where Jesus says, the Son of Man will go as it is written, or as it has been determined, but woe to the man by whom he is betrayed. Jesus knew that Judas would betray him when he was chosen. Jesus even states that in choosing these twelve chief disciples, that, that Judas would be used in this way, that, that Judas would seek uh, as, as he even says that a devil is among you in John 6.6. 6. Let me read that. John chapter 6, verse 66. You know that trouble's coming when you get to chapter 6, verse 66. So, uh, so here, here it is, uh, John chapter 6. And this is after uh, Jesus has, has been teaching um, very harshly. You know, these people that had been following him because, oh, he gives out bread, and oh, he, he like does all of these tricks. And so they're really fascinated by this Jesus, and then he starts preaching very harshly about sin. And so people are like, I've kind of had enough of this guy. Like, I've seen enough of the tricks. I'm done. And so in verse 66, after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? And Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Verse 70, Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you, is a devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. For he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. Jesus knew it, and it had to happen. Going back to Acts, uh, verse 17. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. I mean, you have to know that they were shaken. Because when they were all sitting around um, at the Passover meal, in that upper room, and Jesus says, one of you will betray me. No one went, it's Judas. Like, nobody, nobody knew, like, it's got to be that guy. Like, he is, he is a dirty scoundrel. Like, that, if there's going to be somebody here, it's going to be that guy. No. They're, they're the first thing out of their mouth, is it me? Is that going to be, it put fear in them. 
And so when Jesus is betrayed, they feel deeply betrayed and confused. And so as, as Peter is telling them what happened concerning Judas, it had to happen. But he was numbered among them. He was one of them, one of the twelve. All four Gospels, they, they refer to him as one of the twelve. I mean, they make a point, like to go out of the way. He's not just this disciple. He's one of the twelve chief disciples, the inner circle. He shared in the ministry. He was on the inside. He was allotted that inner access. It reminds me of, uh, you you might have seen the the movie, uh, The Assassination of Jesse James by the coward Robert Ford. It's the extended title. Um, And you get to see Robert Ford who's brilliantly played. I mean, it's, it's, he's creepy in this movie, but, but he becomes so close uh, to Jesse James. And he, in, after Jesse was killed by Robert Ford in his own home, shot in the back of the head, um, this song was written, 1882, The Ballad of Jesse James. And one of the lines in it was even, he, he ate, uh, he, he slept in Jesse's bed, and he ate from Jesse's bread. And he laid poor Jesse in his grave. That song was actually later done in the 1930s by Woody Guthrie, um, The Ballad of Jesus Christ. And, And it mirrors this relationship, this person that was brought in to the inner circle, who ate from the bread and betrayed him. That coward Robert Ford and at the end of the movie, um, Robert Ford is laid, he's assassinated himself. Um, and, and one of the last things said is no, no eulogy, no funeral procession, no children named after him. No one paid 25 cents to stand in the rooms he grew up in. I mean, that's this Judas character. I mean, this, this Judas that... I mean, everything with him is just so, the, the, that he, was, he hung himself, that, um, that he split open and his bowels gushed out. I mean, that's some, we got some intense you know, phrases there. I mean, if you, if, if you look online, iTunes, well, this sermon is going to be called, he split open and his bowels gushed out. I mean, because that's, that's, a, that's a visual right there. And, uh, and so we get this, we get this view of, Judas in this inner circle, and they are betrayed. Acts 4, 28. Um, Peter prays in light of this truth that, that God had planned this betrayal and this suffering in regards to the officials who condemned Jesus. And, and he says these words, Whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place, whatever your hand, Lord, whatever your plan, Lord, predestined to take place. We see this again in Isaiah 53. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. Peter is reiterating this, that not only um, did Jesus know about Judas betraying him, that he was the devil among them, it was the will of the Lord. It was his plan and his hand. But don't think that Judas was just an unwilling pawn in some divine plot. 
Yes, it was prophesied. Uh, But as John Calvin put it, Judas wasn't compelled by prophecy, but only by the malice of his own heart. See, Judas had a choice, and his heart chose betrayal. And this is uh, even alluded to in verse 18 concerning the field that he acquired. It was a field acquired with the reward of his wickedness. The field of blood purchased with the reward of his wickedness. So we must hold tightly in our understanding of the sovereignty of God, displayed in the determined plan of God, predestined, this hand and plan. And we hold tightly to the wickedness and responsibility of Judas's betrayal. And the way that Peter unpacks this and points to all of this is through Psalm 69. The righteous suffer. And he says that Judas is that unrighteous enemy of the great righteous sufferer. David wrote this psalm about one who would suffer greatly, but he would be the righteous sufferer. And the enemy is the unrighteous enemy. And whereas in the psalm he's talking about this group of people, Peter sees this embodied in Judas. This is concerning Judas, that Judas would betray. And in Psalm 69, it says, May their camp be a desolation. May no one dwell in their tents. Peter sees this as a prophecy concerning Judas, his field of blood, his place of desolation. And then he also sees in Psalm 109 um, that that's pointing to their present circumstance, which needs to happen. And that takes us to our second movement, the choosing of a twelfth apostle must happen. Let another take his office. Psalm 109. It's another psalm about vindication. And the psalmist cries out that the Lord would vindicate the righteous sufferer. That the enemy would be punished. And um, But you, you, O oh my Lord, deal on my behalf. And so there we see that this death of Judas is divine judgment. This isn't just simply regret and suicide. This is divine judgment, one of many that we will see in Acts. The enemy is judged and dealt with, and now another must take his position of authority. Look at verse 21 in Acts. Acts 1. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us. One of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. There needs to be a twelfth apostle. There are many disciples, but there needs to be a twelfth apostle. Apostle. Jesus intends for the twelve apostles to be leaders of the restored Israel, to represent the twelve tribes established in Genesis 49, which we looked at just a couple of months ago, the sons of Jacob. Jesus says in Matthew 19, 28, 
Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And these particular disciples, these chief disciples, Peter outlines a qualification. In, In verse 21, he says, They would have to be there from the beginning, as Jesus went in and out among them, from the baptism of John until the ascension. A man who is a witness to the resurrected Lord. And this is where uh, later we do see Paul use this kind of language to describe himself as, as, as an apostle, the apostle Paul. And that's because he saw the risen Lord. But he would not fall under these qualifications for the twelve the twelve apostles, because he was not there from the beginning, the baptism of John, until the ascension. But he is an apostle in the respect of he, he has seen the risen Lord. Now we also uh, need to keep in mind that this doesn't need to happen again. In, in Acts 12, James is executed and he is not replaced. This has a, a particular purpose right here in Acts 1 as they are awaiting Pentecost, as they are awaiting the Spirit to come to them. And so they outline this criteria for the the twelfth apostle. And then that takes us to this third movement. That they need Jesus to show them His choice. See, this parallels, this this account parallels Luke 6, where Jesus has chosen the twelfth. And now they're saying, we need you to do that again. Uh, we know that th- this needs to happen. There needs to be a 12th apostle. Um, but we, we don't know who that is. So, so they do the work, though. They do the work first with uh, putting forth and putting forward the, these two men who fulfill the qualifications. And then they do the other work. They pray. And so they need, they need Jesus to show them his choice. Look at verse 23. And they put forward to Joseph, called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, you who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go down to his own place. To go to his own place, that's that's emphasizing yet again this judgment. He went to his own place. That's an eternal place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. Again, just like in John 6 and in Luke 6, Jesus chooses the apostles. They pray for Jesus to show them. Show who you have already chosen. Show what you have planned. The two men are proposed according to those qualifications, and they pray. And they pray probably in in, in an even more um, emphatic manner because they've been betrayed before by somebody on the outside that looked just like them. See, this time, they're saying, we need need your help because you know hearts, Jesus. And and even in that prayer, 
they are addressing this prayer to Christ. As they talk to him as, as Lord, they address him as Lord at the beginning of, of chapter 1. And then he's referred to as the Lord Jesus halfway through chapter 1. And now again, they're saying, Lord, we need you, Jesus, to show us who you have chosen. This is the same verb happening, happening here this, of, of choosing as in Luke 6 when he says in verse 13, and when the day came, he called his disciples and chose from them twelve whom he named apostles. You know the hearts of men. This is another uh, deep theological uh, truth here that you know the hearts of men. This is, this is acknowledging something that is referred to throughout the Old Testament. Only God knows the hearts of men. Only God knows that. And here they are testifying. Peter is testifying that Jesus knows the hearts of men. And then they cast their lots. We don't see this practice again after this. After the Holy Spirit comes to, to lead and to guide them. Uh, we, we don't see this practice again. Um, you might remember when we went through Jonah uh, a number of months ago, that there was the casting of lots there. And there, there's even a proverb, um, Proverbs 16, 33. The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. And so they cast a lot. It could have been a bag with you know, two different colors uh, in there of coins or beads or stones or maybe even uh, names written on there. And it was Matthias. He was brought in never to be written about again uh, within the, the Holy Scriptures. Um, but now there were a number of the apostles after this point. Um, there shouldn't be any reason to, to think poorly of old Matthias. Um, but there, there we have it. That's what happened. And so we benefit from knowing just the bare fact that that happened, that that occurred, but there are also things that we can learn and apply today in our context because we're not looking for another apostle. And none of us could even be that because we haven't seen the risen Lord. We are disciples, still carrying on the great commission that went out to those apostles and disciples because that, that primary reason for the apostleship was that they were going out with authority as witnesses to the resurrection. And this applies to us today. We witness to the story of the resurrection, the gospel truth of the resurrection and the ascension. And we carry that on. But, but here we, we move um, to what we can learn for our context. And, and one, of the, one of the primary questions that I, that I like to ask whenever I'm reading any scripture is, first and foremost, what does this teach me about God? And this is a, a simple question that really began um, with, with a new emphasis uh, in, in starting to read these Bible stories um, to my little daughter. And, and at, the, at the introduction of this Bible, Jesus Storybook Bible, it, it talks about how this isn't about these characters, these Bible characters. It's not, it's not a, these heroes of the faith. It's not about what you need to do. It's about God and what he has done. And so now we can ask this question, what is this teaching me about who God is? His attributes, his identity, his personality, what is he like? And there are two things that I'd like for us to pull out and to consider. First off, that God is faithful to his word. 
First, he's faithful to speak it. He, he speaks through the mouth of David. He uses David to speak his word. And secondly, he is faithful to fulfill it. He speaks it and he does it. Peter is testifying to this. He says in this scene where we see what has happened and what needs to happen, all of this is going back to what God has said and what God will do. And this is true for us today. That we would read God's word not just to know things about the past or to try somehow to determine the future or to do a bunch of math to determine the future. Like, you know, I mean, the... the yeah, uh, so it's, it's, not, it's not that, but ultimately that we would know and worship this God for what he has done and what he will do because he is faithful to his word. We can come to his word seeking him and finding him faithful. He is faithful to his word. And we see this really exploding um, uh, if you would um, flip, we're going to spoil a little bit uh, of a sermon that um, is coming soon. But in chapter 2, look at verse 22. Chapter 2, 22 of Acts. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosening the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. See, he, Peter, is again pointing to the word of God fulfilled because it was not possible for anything else to happen. God said it. He spoke it. And it happened. And we join in not only trusting in that truth, but pointing to that truth for others to hear and see, to proclaim that truth. He is faithful to His Word. And secondly, He is faithful to His church. He's faithful as he brings up leadership and as he guides his church. And this, this, this is a hard thing to hear because many of you, many of us don't. Um, but God loves his church. Many of us have a hard time with that. Um, mostly because we just see these churches, we, we see like some, some church, and, and, and we can be very critical of, of how they do things or, or what's going on there. And, and some of that's merited. Some of it is because there's false teaching happening or, or, or there's corruption happening, there's abuse happening. And, and that criticism is valid and necessary. But that criticism turns into cynicism, and we hate the church. If some of you talked about your spouses the way that you talk about the church... Your friends and your families would be driving you to counseling immediately. And yet we do that. See, God is faithful to his church because he loves his church. He has redeemed and he is redeeming his church because he loves his church. And some of us have forgotten that. 
We think that it's okay to, I, I love Jesus and then I have this church and uh, as long as I've got the me and Jesus thing going, like everything else is cool. And that's not okay. And that might be hard to hear, but it's hard to hear because it's true, not simply because you don't like it. God loves his church. Andy Byers, uh, a a local pastor here, he he wrote this book recently called Faith Without Illusions, and I wanted to read one, one little passage about the church. He says the church, as an untidy conglomeration of imperfect people from all walks of life, the margin for human error in the church is quite high. We are a dysfunctional family of sinful siblings, repeatedly failing and injuring one another. Thus, the descent into cynicism. It's it's a tough truth, but it's true. God loves his church, and and he cares for his church, and we need to join in that love and that care. One of the ways that he is faithful to his church uh, is, is... in prayer. And that's one thing you're going to see throughout this study of Acts time and time and time again, is that during prayer and in prayer, God moves mightily. From Acts 1, the praying for the 12th apostle, Acts 4, praying for boldness, boldness. Uh, Acts 6, choosing the seven to serve, Acts 8, the spirit falling on Jerusalem believers. Time and time again, prayer is central as these believers interact with God. These acts of the apostles, as the book is called, these acts are tied to, synonymous with prayer. And we too must join in that prayer. God is not an absent father. Sometimes we treat him like some deadbeat dad that we're trying to get child support from. He is is present and he loves and he cares. and, And as he even says that why... As a loving father, would he, would he withhold the spirit? You know, a loving father, you know, he's, you're, you're not going to ask for a fish and get a snake, but the loving father gives what is necessary. And what is necessary for us is the spirit. And God, as a loving father, is faithful in prayer. We eagerly await the return of Christ just like these men and women, the 120, they eagerly await the Spirit to come. And we join with the apostles. We join with these disciples, lifting our voice as a witness to the resurrection. And after they receive the promised helper, the one who would be with them and in them, they boldly go out. See, this great necessity. We can learn from both the descriptive, what did happen, and the prescriptive, what what we are called into, this proclamation to be witnesses. Just as Jesus said in Acts 1, that we would be witnesses throughout the world. That is the fulfillment of that great commission call, that we would join in and be witnesses to this resurrection story. Our God is faithful. And I know that seems like a very simple truth, one that you've heard time and time again. And one of the problems that we have in church is that we come in thinking that we already know everything. 
But really, this is a truth that we would all say that we believe, but we rarely live like we believe it. God is faithful. In your confusion, in your fear, just like the fear and confusion that these apostles felt as they were betrayed by Judas, in your cynicism, in your anger, in your pride, God is faithful. And one of the reasons that we have to keep coming back together week in and week out is because we need to believe these things. And it's hard. And so we come to one another. We share in life together. We can remind one another of the gospel and that God is faithful. Let's pray. Lord, again, we thank you for your word. We're thankful that you are faithful to it, and we thank you that you are faithful to your church, the church universal, the church past and present and future. You are faithful. Help us to lay down our cynicism, to lay down our bitterness, And that we would love the church as Christ loves the church. And Lord, that we would trust you when you say things. Lord, that we would not try and make you look or think like us. We expend so much energy trying to do that. Or teach us. Teach us what it means to be a witness to the resurrection. We pray these things in and for the name of Christ. Amen.